Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I was worried this morning when I looked out there first uh, that maybe the rapture happened and I didn't know about it. And then I saw that Warren Savant's here, so I felt better. Um, and so we're glad you're here. Excuse me. Oh, man. So thank you for being here the first Sunday of the summer. Uh, and so we're going to be here all summer, just in case you were wondering. And we're going to be really plotting our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been doing for a number of weeks. So we've come to a passage in Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at this middle part of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where Jesus talks about what it means to live as a disciple, live as one who follows after him. And um, so today we're going to see a little bit more about what that means, what he came to do, who he is, how he did it, and what it means for us as we try to follow him. So it's, it, this is a passage... We pray before uh, we come in here, and one of the guys we were praying with this morning, you know, no pressure, but you know, he prayed, "Man, this is Father, help us with this passage because we've been my my wife and I've been wondering about this passage all our lives for thirty years. We've been debating the meaning of this passage. So temper your expectations, but um, it it is a kind of a controversial passage, and one that we need to do a lot of explaining of. So, uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to read along with us, you're welcome to. If not, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder in the insert. It will also be on the screen behind me, this sermon text for this morning from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Let's read together. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen... You'll notice this is the quote from Isaiah 42, which is our call to worship. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is God's Word. Now, like I said, this is a very difficult passage, talking about evil and how we we engage it. There's a... um, (laughs) There seems to be this this kind of, I think, naive little tagline that's going around in movies that you might go see uh, these days. And I don't know if it's, you know, postmodernism waxing philosophical or whatever it might be. But even 
and Harry Potter, and even there's a new cheesy Nick, Nicolas Cage movie called The Sorcerer's Apprentice out, I think, that I saw a trailer of not long ago, and, and the, the villain, you know, made this statement that, ooh, very chilling, uh, you know, that that's stolen from J.K. Rowling in in her books. But at the end of book one in the Harry Potter series, as Harry's confronting um, Voldemort, you know, down in the chamber, down underneath the school they're at, Voldemort makes this statement. He says, there is no good and evil. There's only power. And those too weak to seek it. Uh, and it just seems to be, it's, everywhere I turn, it seems to be this kind of refrain you hear these days. There, are, there is no good and evil. There's only power. Uh, there is no good and evil. And the quintessential postmodern ideology, I think, but it's always the bad guys. It's interesting. It's always the bad guys who are saying things like this. Right? And I think a Christian world and life view would say something very differently than that. Uh, and that's what we're after, and I think that's what this text provides us. So, in the interest of that, C.S. Lewis, who you know most of us are familiar with, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he wrote a chapter about this, and, and I want to quote him, kind of a long quote, but just hang with me. He says, I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. And if you know what dualism is, dualism is the belief that there are, that there are forces of good and evil in the world that are, very, that are similar in their power and their authority and they're vying for who's going to ultimately gain control of the universe. So C.S. Lewis says, I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is, now listen, that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in part of the universe occupied by the rebel. He goes on to say, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity, then, is the story of how the rightful king is landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now, so you see he's on to something. Uh, to be a Christian and to follow Jesus means you take up his mission. That's what we've said, right? You take up his authority. You take up his sufferings. And ultimately what it means is we're called, and this passage is going to show us, that we're, we are called to engage the powers of evil that are behind all of the sin and pain and suffering in our world. War, Oppressive governments, broken families, disease, child abuse, greed, and consumption that lead to natural disasters like the Gulf oil spill. That evil is afoot in our world. And if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus, we have to learn to confront it and overcome it. And we have to train our kids and we have to send them out into the world to engage the corruption and the brokenness that are destroying lives. Now, two primary responses to evil that I think we need, to, we need to talk about and then we're going to get right into the passage. As you think about this, what C.S. Lewis is saying and that evil really is a foot in the world, there really are two ways we typically respond to evil. The first is to live naively of it, what I would call the ostrich approach, to underestimate evil. So if there's evil out there, the, the, the easiest, one of the easiest things to do is to underestimate it, to live as if it really doesn't exist. And let me give you just a couple of examples. The one that first came to mind is to let, you know, you might be, this is how you know you might be engaging evil this way. If you let your teenage son have a TV in his bedroom with HBO and Showtime on it. Or an internet connection that's unsupervised. That's to live naively. 
of what evil can do. And, then, and of how real it is. But not only are we tempted to live naively and to underestimate, we also, on the other end, we can overestimate. We can live in fear of it, and we can just adopt a strategy of withdrawal. You can put your kids in, you know, and I don't, I'm not picking on anybody here, but, you know, you be careful because you can start to defensively posture yourself, put your kids in, in, in private school or in Christian school or homeschool them, you know, you can you can play upward sports, which means you never have to be around anybody that doesn't share your faith commitment. You can create a little Christian subculture or a ghetto so that you never have to go out there where that big bad evil stuff is. And that's naive too, because it 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 seems to think that evil's not alive and well on Christian school campuses. Hello? Or that parents at upward sports aren't just as corrupt as parents who play at Sertoma Park. And so we're we're tempted. You know, underestimate, overestimate. Underestimate, live naively. Overestimate, live in fear. So how do we faithfully engage? How do we do this responsibly? And you have to see, I think, that evil is a real threat, that it has a name, as we're going to see. In other words, not underestimating, but that the threat has been met and overcome by Jesus, that Jesus really has gained victory over the powers of evil. So we don't, un- we don't overestimate evil either. So finding the balance in those things. That's what we're after this morning. And we're going to do it by looking at this passage under these three headings. And they're just the three points in the outline that I provided for you on the back of the sheet where your sermon passage is. Just these three things. The work of the king, we want to see. The work of the king, the enemies of the king, and the methods of the king. And those are, that's just it. I think that's going to help us to see the work of the king, Jesus, the, the enemies of the king, Thirdly, the methods of the king, and then some conclusions about what it looks like to follow the king. So let's just start walking through this passage by talking about the work of the king. How does this passage help us understand what Jesus came to do? Now, um, you'll notice there in verse 23 that the crowds see Jesus' miracles, and they see what he's doing, and they begin to ask the question. You see it in verse 23, could this be the son of David? The title Son of David is used seven times in Matthew's Gospel, and it has significant theological implications. Uh, King David in the Old Testament was Israel's best king. He was the ideal leader of God's people. He was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says, and under his reign, Israel experienced prosperity and blessing and wholeness that they'd never experienced before or since. And so the Jews at the time of Jesus' ministry were looking for one to come who would be a son from the line of David who would become king and under whose rule they would again experience all the things they experienced when David was their king so many years ago. Freedom from their enemies and life and prosperity and blessing. And so in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to himself and he reveals himself to be this son of David. This long-awaited king in the line of David who is going to come and through his kingship would bring blessing and life to his people. And, and it's interesting, when Matthew mentions, or when Matthew gives him this title in his gospel, it always is connected to Jesus' healing ministry. So you see here, he, ca- he heals and their, their, their response is, could it be the son of David? Or if, A couple chapters ago, there were two blind men who were begging by the side of the road and they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us, come and heal us. So it's always connected to Jesus' healing ministry. Um, there's There's a great illustration of this in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which Tony will enjoy, my friend Tony, who's the Lord of the Rings freak. But, um, Aragorn, the, the, the character Aragorn, 
in the books and in the movies, who is the rightful king at the very end of the, of the trilogy, has led the armies of men to victory over the armies of darkness. And he comes to the city, Minas Tirith, um, but he will not come into the city because it's under the rule of, a, of the steward and he does not want to cause any friction or any strife. So what happens is you soon find out that the steward is dead. He's, he's killed himself and his son is badly wounded from battle. So Gandalf the wizard, if you're familiar with the story, if not, go home and rent it, whatever, but hang in there, convinces, he convinces Aragorn to come into the city by saying this, and here's the words from the book. He says, let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter, for it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. And then he makes this statement. He says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and by healing shall the rightful king be known. Now, Tolkien, in the book, even gives him a name, which in the elfin tongue means rescuer. And, re- and restore. It really means renewer. And he goes into, what happens is Aragorn goes in, it's not in the movie, it's my favorite part of the books and they didn't put it in the movie and I hated it um, for that. But he goes in and what he does is he goes from bed to bed and he begins to, to heal and restore those who have been wounded in battle. This is the work of the king. This is what the king does. He heals. The king is a renewer. He's a healer. And that's what Matthew's saying about Jesus, that Jesus, the exorcisms and the miracles that he's been doing in verse 28, he says, they're evidence that the kingdom of God is coming upon you. That's what Jesus says. And in many ways, the coming of the kingdom of God is the theme around which Matthew's gospel is organized. It's Matthew's thesis. It's how he understands the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew's phrase. That the healing and the renewal of all things is coming in Jesus, who is the rightful king, who is the renewer. The one who brings healing. And this is echoed in the quote from Isaiah 42 there. If you look in verses 18 through 21. The job of the son of David, we're told there in this passage, is to establish justice. And this too is a huge theme in the scripture. So for example, in Psalm 72 we read, and I'll just read it to you. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, that he may judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And also here in Isaiah 42, quoted here, which is a prophecy about the Messiah, the king would come, and it says that his job description, if you look there, is to proclaim or to bring forth justice twice, there in Matthew's paraphrase, but three times in the four verses in the original Hebrew. He's coming to bring justice. That's his mission. He came to establish justice on the earth. And a synonym for justice is just this idea of shalom, peace, wholeness, flourishing, Justice means to make straight. It means to, it means to put things right, to correct what has become disfigured or marred or broken by sin. It, it is to, to set things in order. And the, that's the work of the king. That this world has been twisted and made crooked and, and corrupted by sin. And the one who would come, the son of David would come and he would set about to do justice. To take what was crooked and to make it straight. To take what was broken and fractured and to make it whole again. To take what is diseased and to bring it to health. To undo the curse of sin and to establish justice, flourishing, prosperity, peace. For the people of God. That's the work of the king. That's what he came to do. 
But what we learn in this passage is that he has enemies in that work. And so let's continue through and see not only the work of the king, but the enemies of the king. In verse 29, it gets kind of hairy in this passage because Jesus mentions a strong man. Verse 26, he mentions Satan. Verse 27, he mentions this character Beelzebul. And verse 27, he also mentions demons. Uh, So, according to Jesus, there is a hierarchy of evil spiritual forces that are behind all of the brokenness and sin in the world. And so the nature of Jesus' work is to put him on a collision course with these forces of evil. And what happens is it creates polarization. He says we're either for him or against him. There's no middle ground. And that's what is... that. It's out of that that is borne out the reaction of the Pharisees and the exchange that happens in this passage. So that's what we need to look at for just a minute, okay? Uh, Look with me there in those verses. The Pharisees, let me get it right, verse 24, they see his exorcisms and miracles and conclude that he's a bad guy. They accuse him of being in league with Satan. That's really what they did. They accuse him of being in league with satanic forces. They say, verse 24, It is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Beelzebul is just another name for Satan. You know, so he's he's really, he's he's saying Jesus is aligned with evil. That's what they're saying. And, And now, just stop for one minute with me and think about that. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing people. He's feeding people. He's doing all kinds of good stuff. And the only conclusion the Pharisees can come to is that he's in league with Satan. Holy cow. I mean, that's what the scripture calls hard hearts. You see, the Pharisees are biased. They're not truly curious about him. They've made up their minds already. They've concluded he is wrong, and so they interpret everything he's doing as being wrong. One commentator calls it a determined opposition. They have a determined opposition against him. Even the way that they describe Jesus in the original language, when they say this, this fellow, you know, it's only by the bells above that this man, this fellow, it's just, they're just, um, they're sarcastic, they expose their hatred and disgust. They are contemptuous and arrogant and self-assured and hard-hearted. And I just want to say, it is a picture of what sin can do to the human heart. And before we pass judgment on the Pharisees, do you realize that you're biased against Jesus too? (laughs) That this is a picture of your heart and mine? That the reason they hated him so much is that he undermined their authority and their place in society, and it's the same with us, our flesh, the part of us, that wants to be God so badly, is determinedly opposed to Jesus. We hate the idea there's somebody who wants, who's, out, who's out there who gets to tell us what to do. We are so committed to our own autonomy, to our right to live however we choose, that our attitude oftentimes, and if it's not just directly out there, it's underneath the surface, our attitude is often very similar to the Pharisees. I mean, it's just gross. It's evil at work. It's evil coming into you, passing into you, you know, and doing this. And and so I've got to just mention it, and you're going to be very, it's going to be a very unsatisfactory treatment, but later on in the passage, Jesus makes this very cryptic statement about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven in verses 31 and 32. What is that? And most commentators are really divided about this, and it's very controversial. Uh, but I think in context, you just see it's just this, that the Pharisees were eyewitnesses to all of the wonderful things Jesus was doing, and instead of being amazed and worshiping God, they were perverse enough to attribute the work of God to Satan. 
They looked at what Jesus, who was God, was doing in the name of God the Father, and they attributed it to Satan. And the reason Jesus says that this sin will not be forgiven is not because God's unwilling to forgive, but what's happening is is that when men like this and when we start to do this, it shows a depth of hardness of heart that is so profound it renders the person utterly incapable of repentance and coming humbly to God in faith. I mean, if you can look at the miracles of Jesus and conclude and attribute them to Satan, if you can look at good and call it evil, and if you can look at evil and be convinced it's good, it means you're completely calloused, you're hard-hearted, and you're self-deceived. And Jesus just warns that if you get to that place, it's impossible for you to come to repentance. And so here's the reality. They've got it all wrong. Jesus is not in league with Satan. He's come to square off against him. What they are proposing is so ridiculous it isn't even rational. Look what he says. Jesus is using demonic power to cast out demons. That's what they're saying. He's tapping into Satan's power to cast out Satan. And he says, you guys are silly. That doesn't even make sense. No, I've come to confront evil. He's doing these things in the power of the Spirit. He says, the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is expressing his reign and his rule. He's conquering his enemies and subduing them. There's a cosmic clash of kingdoms that's unfolding in his life and ministry. That's what he says. And Jesus says he came, and this is a great metaphor, I think, in these, in these verses in verse 29, to enter the strong man's house and to plunder his goods. Do you see that? And the picture with that that you have to get into your head It's similar to some of the things we've been reading in Kings in our community Bible reading. A king laying siege, just think about it this way. A king laying siege to an enemy city and eventually overcoming it and breaching the walls and going in and releasing prisoners from the dungeon and then taking all the riches of the city for himself. That's how Jesus describes his earthly ministry. The strong man he refers to as Satan. Satan has a house, he has a city, he has a kingdom, he has a realm, he has a people, he has plunder, he has a castle with a moat surrounding it and huge walls and soldiers guarding it and we're locked in the dungeon. We're locked in the dungeon with no hope of rescue. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the picture he's painting and he says, I came. I came to lay siege to Satan's house and to breach its walls and to fight my way through the horde to set you free from the prison you're in. And if you're a Christian, then that is what Jesus has done for you. It's what he continues to do. It's still happening. Every time somebody repents and believes, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth and the nations are turning to Jesus in faith. That's what's happening all around us. And the reason is, is that in his work on the cross, Jesus took away Satan's ability to put up a good fight. He disarmed him, or as he says here, if you look there in those verses, he bound him. Verse 29. We look there with me? How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. That word bind is a word that means to tie up or to put in chains. In the Bible, the word word is used in the context of somebody being arrested most often. They're bound, for example, and carried off to Pilate. Maybe the best translation for us would be handcuff. So the first thing a police officer does when he arrests a suspect is put the person in handcuffs. Now why? He does it to render that person incapable of producing a counterattack. Right? You put the person in handcuffs, they can't fight back. 
they make it impossible uh, to, for that person to resist. They put that the, the handcuffs keep them under their submission. Jesus says he's come, and the work has been to handcuff or to bind Satan. It reminded me of a story. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I was dating a girl, um, and uh, we, I had never, I had one little sister, and I'd never been around little kids very much, but she was like this babysitter par excellence, you know, and, and I had never done any babysitting, which was probably a very good thing. People were very wise to stay away from me for that, but um, so she invited me, uh, we were just starting today, and she invited me to go to a babysitting job she had at a, at a house of a family that I've come to know since who had five kids. It sounded pretty harmless, so I said, sure, I'll go. We got there, and it happened to be kind of a gathering of seven or eight families, and there literally were probably 20 or 25 kids running around in the front yard. They had this little fort thing, you know, and, and most of them were boys. And so now there was, you know, I'm trying to make an impression upon my girlfriend. I'm trying to make it like I actually know what I'm doing, you know, which I don't. I'm trying to make an impression upon these people. I'm at their house, and so... They decided pretty soon it got to be, you know, this game that most boys play or most little kids play of, you know, let's see if we can capture the babysitter, right? And so they're laying out, you know, the little lassos in the yard, and I'm walking by, and they try to, you know, like get me and tie me up and stuff. And we played that for probably an hour, and I was, you know, older enough to know, well, I've got to kind of, got to kind of let them get me, but not really, so they'll keep playing. Uh, and I remember after about a time, um, something happened. I don't know if I lost, uh, you know, I don't, maybe I lost my bearings. I don't know what happened, but uh, there was one point in the game where um, I was trying to let them get me, and they got me. And pretty soon, <clears throat> I knew uh, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> it was something like, you know, where I, they had this little thing on the ground, and I stick my hand in it, and they tied it up, and then all of a sudden I realized, okay, I, I can't use my hands. And now there are 20 children running crazy, and I, and I literally, it ended up with me yell, there going, help, help. And the kids were just, you know, going crazy. Uh, and because they, they, they tied me, they bound me, they somehow, they somehow got to me, and I remember the helplessness of that, uh, and then it was just anarchy, you know, and, and pretty embarrassing, quite honestly. And, and it's a funny picture, but I use it just, that's what Jesus says he's done to Satan. That in his ministry he came to bind him, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. That word disarmed is from the same root as the word bound. Satan is chained up. He's been handcuffed. At the cross of of Christ, Jesus dealt a death blow to him. He's taken away his power and authority. He's bound him. And what what the imagery of that verse in Colossians means is, is he has paraded him through the heavenlies behind his war chariot as a defeated foe. He's drug him through the heavenlies to, to humiliate and shame him as being a defeated foe. Isn't that great? I mean, is that good news for anybody? Now, a matter of expectations, the scripture says he's still a roaring lion, but he's on a leash. There's still evil that we must meet with and overcome, but it has been crippled. It has been dealt a death blow. It has been bound. Because, you see, Jesus has come to meet his enemies. He's come to bring justice, to undo the powers of evil and overcome them and rescue his people. And in order to do that, he had to confront and overcome the hierarchy of evil spiritual forces. Uh, And he did that through his ministry. But also, notice the sinful, political, social, and religious hierarchies that exist in the world that are the expression of the invisible spiritual realms. So we're told in verse 14 
that after healing the man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees conspired against him to try to destroy him. They put a bounty out on him. And he's just trying to set expectations for us as well, that as we do this, as we go out, we will encounter this in the sinful political, social, and religious hierarchies that exist that are against Jesus too. And so how do we, so how do, we do that well? What are his methods? What do we learn from Jesus about his methods as we engage, even in our city and our culture? Now, when you think about what we've said, that he is the great king who came to destroy his enemies and overthrow evil, you would expect him to meet the challenge head on, but he doesn't. Notice in verse 15, we're told that he withdrew. When they came after him, when, when the heat really started to rise, he withdrew. And it wasn't fear. It was a strategy. See, soon he would face his opponent, so it couldn't be fear. It was strategy. He heals people and tells them to keep quiet about it. You see that? He avoids self-advertisement. He quiets enthusiasm about his ministry. Why? It's not that he's afraid. He didn't wait for cover of darkness and leave town. It's obvious, it's obvious public knowledge because lots of people follow him. So why? Why did he do it that way? And most commentators agree that it was just a matter of strategy, that Jesus was taking precautions to avoid premature confrontation. So what happens there is as Jesus employs the strategy, Matthew sees fulfillment in it of this passage in Isaiah 42 about the figure that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. And what I want us to see here as we just come to a close this morning is that this reveals, Matthew's understanding of this in, in Isaiah 42 reveals something about his character and something about his mission. Okay, so let's just finish there. So first, something about his character. Uh, Jesus didn't like the limelight. He wasn't a publicity seeker. He preferred to go about his work quietly and without fuss. He wasn't motivated by the, the approval of the crowds or by the plots of his enemies. There's a time... In John chapter 7, where his, where his brothers come to him and say, you know, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem right now. You ought to go up there. You can make a name for yourself. And he says, that's not, that's, no, that's, that's not what I'm about. I'm not affected by the crowds or by the plots of my enemies. You see, there's just a simplicity to Jesus. Do you see that? There's this deep humility, a gentleness. He wouldn't stand out in a crowd. I mean, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42. You see that there, he will not quarrel or cry loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he won't control public discourse. He won't write letters to the editor engaging his enemies in debate. You won't hear from him. He just quietly goes about his work under the radar in the forgotten parts and backwater towns of Israel. He's come to do the work of a king, but he does it without adopting the methodologies of the king because he's unlike any king that's ever lived. See, Jesus has already described himself in Matthew's Gospel as being gentle and lowly of heart. In other words, there's a profound humility in his life. He doesn't make a big deal out of himself. Remember Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but made himself nothing and took on the nature of a, of a man and became like a servant. I mean, that's how he is, and it affects the way he treats people. Look there. Again, he was never harsh or over-demanding, never cruel, never careless with his words, never insensitive to the needs and life circumstances of others. Isaiah puts it this way in language that is just really beautiful to me. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And those were things that you usually would just throw away. A bruised reed, you know, one that, a reed that had a crack in it, that meant a death blow. There was an internal, you know, blow that it had taken that would, would really mean that its life was over. And a smoldering wick is just the last little bit of a candle that you usually just, you know, and snuff out. And he says, not, not this king. This king, he doesn't do that. I mean, even a burning wick, he won't snuff it out. There's just a gentleness and a humility to him. And that's just beautiful. 
And what happens is, is because that reve- that part is revealed about his character, it also reveals something about the nature of his ministry. That the way he went about his life and ministry, his humility and kindness and servant spirit was completely consistent with the objective of his larger mission. And if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see, and, and it's, a, it's a great, you ought to read if you've never read it before, right on the heels of the fall of man into sin, God preaches the gospel to Satan because Satan's there. He's right in the middle of all those things and he's come in the form of a serpent. And if, if you go back there and read, he, he preaches to Satan and what he says is he tells Satan that a descendant of the woman would come one day, that a, a, a son of Eve would come. And here's what he says to the serpent in the garden. He says, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So he preaches the gospel to Satan. And, and you can get the metaphor. The metaphor is really beautiful. If you can imagine, we were at the Voice Arts not long ago, uh, a couple weeks ago for a community group outing, and we were, we were just sitting around lounging in their yard, and a snake kind of ruffled through the grass. <laughs> you know, my sons went flying into the house, and all, I mean, all the women, and I joined them, and we all kind of just, the women just kind of... You know, we just freaked out. I mean, it's just a little gardener snake just running through. But if you can imagine being there in the middle, you know, with your friends there in a, a, a cotton mouth, you know, or a rattlesnake or some venomous snake comes and stands right in the middle and you know there's one person and you know the only way, the only way to save your friends is to take your foot and to stomp on it. But the problem is, is that when you step on a deadly poisonous snake, even if you crush his head, because they wore sandals in these days, not, you know, boots like we do, but the metaphor would have been obvious. If you crush, if somebody were to be willing to take their foot and crush the head of a venomous snake, it would mean that he could bite your heel and the poison would begin to sink into you. And so you say you saved your friends by having the poison from the snake's fangs go into you. You saved your friends, but what it meant, what it meant ultimately is... Your death and Jesus, we're told, comes and he crushes the head of the serpent. But the consequence is that as he, as he puts his foot upon the head of the serpent, the serpent strikes at his heel and the venom flows into him. And only it means his death. And that's what we see here. And it's the reason I included in Isaiah 42. Because in the original language, in your call to worship, it's really hard to see. But there's a, there's a play on words that happens in the original language. And I'm just going to explain it to you without trying to show it to you. But it's there. And in Isaiah 42, what we're told about the servant of the Lord is it goes something like this. It says, a bruised reed, he will not break, but he will be bruised. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench, but he will grow faint. He will get snuffed out. And it's just a a picture of the cross. That on the cross, Jesus took the bruises that we deserve because of our sin. We deserve to be pounded. But Isaiah 53 says that he was bruised for our iniquities and that by his wounds we're healed. And that's how he overcame evil. That's how he did it. On the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself and paid the penalty for our sins so that he could undo evil. And as he undid evil, he didn't have to remove us. We were part of the evil he had to vanquish. But instead of vanquishing us, he loved us. He didn't vanquish us. He was vanquished. So that in getting rid of evil, he could keep us. You see that? He got the poison of the curse so that we could go through free. That's what he's come to do. That's the way he accomplishes his mission. That's ultimately the way he engages evil. So what does that mean for us as we just close? I want to just, just, I want to make three statements about how we might move closer to engaging evil faithfully. Three statements, and then we're done. Number one, know that neutrality is not an option. (laughs) 
Neutrality is not an option. Don't underestimate evil. All around us, there is a war that is being waged. And neutrality is not an option. You can't bury your head in the sand and live as if it doesn't exist. Jesus says in verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You are either with Jesus against his enemies, or you are with his enemies against him. In your life, you're either bringing people to him, or you're turning people away. Neutrality is not an option. So Edmund Burke's famous line, The only necessary thing for evil to triumph in the world is for good men to do nothing. Neutrality is not an option. You have to choose sides. But number two, fear is not an option. Fear is not an option. Don't, underestimate, don't overestimate. Jesus has won the victory, so fear is not an option. Don't live out of fear. Don't circle the wagons. Don't, don't, you know, don't... We need to stop telling our kids, be careful. And let them go and make mistakes and do stupid things and parent them. We need to not live afraid. We're so afraid. Uh, and Jesus says fear is not an option. Number three, we need to fight. But ultimately we fight with different weapons. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus accomplished the work of the king without resorting to the methods of the king. He didn't grasp for power. He didn't come to take over. He didn't come to take power, but to give it up and to love and to serve and to die. So we're back to what we've been saying all along. That discipleship, a life of love, requires a cross. And let me just explain that very quickly in this context. It means that we live with the same gentleness and lowness of heart that characterized Jesus' mission. Not making a big deal out of ourselves. Avoiding self-advertisement the way he did. Not engaging unnecessarily in arguments and controversies, but quietly going about our work under the radar in the forgotten places in our city. It will mean ultimately... That we refuse to crush a broken reed, but instead are crushed. And ultimately, to bring justice and shalom, it, mean, it means Jesus had to die. It meant a cross for him. And what we're told is it'll mean a cross for us too. Because, you see, the way you overcome evil is not with M16s or F16s. The way you overcome evil is not the adoption of a conservative political agenda. The way you overcome evil is just this. It's sacrificial love. It's a cross. And so he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Neutrality is not an option. Don't underestimate evil. Fear is not an option. Don't overestimate evil. But fight. But know that as you go to fight, you go to fight with different weapons. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> come and um, come and give us wisdom. Come and make us wise to know how to engage faithfully. Uh, because we realize that evil is not done, though it is limping and and has been bound, Satan is still alive. He's a prowling lion, uh, and there's, so there's much work for us to do as we follow after you. And so we pray that you would give us courage and give us wisdom to do it faithfully. Uh, and and we pray that you would just uh, increase our faith in the truth of the gospel, even as we sing this song that Jesus indeed, though you were crushed and though you died upon a cross, it was ultimately for victory's sake. You were not defeated. You have been made victorious, and the result is that Satan has been vanquished, that you indeed are king, and we can celebrate that together even as we sing this song. But as we celebrate it, would you produce in us the courage and the faith and the character to go and to love and to sacrifice and to die for the sake of your great name. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Now listen, Jesus is not, Jesus is not naive. 
about what he is sending us out into the world to do and to be. He tells us that he's sending us as sheep among wolves. So don't be naive uh, as you go, but, but understand that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus sends his disciples out, he makes a statement. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go. So he is the king. I mean, Satan is vanquished. Amen? That was weak, but we'll move on. Thank you. I mean, I've been at youth rallies where we sing that song and the kid, woo! You know, we're screaming stuff, so that's okay. I realize. Presbyterian Church, we, you know, working on that. So, thank you. There you go. There you go. There we go. So know that when he makes that statement, he tells you to go, and then at the very end he says, and here's where, here's where the courage as you go comes from, I will be with you. The one who has been victorious promises to be with you, and that is exactly what this benediction is. These are the words of God over you saying, no matter where you go, no matter what you go to do, I am with you. So take courage. So receive the benediction this morning then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.